like to remind you that if you are experiencing symptoms of a heart attack, stroke, or any life-threatening medical emergency, please call 911. Please do not delay seeking treatment during the COVID-19 epidemic. Most Providence emergency rooms are open, and CDC-required safety measures are being taken to protect patients and hospital staff. If you are unsure of your symptoms, please use our telehealth services and speak with a healthcare professional that can better assess your symptoms and provide direction on the best course of action. Please do not let the worry of COVID-19 cause delay in seeking out treatment if you are experiencing a heart attack or stroke. Every minute treatment is delayed can be fatal. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Future of Health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. Good afternoon and welcome to our broadcast today where we'll be talking about is it safe to go back to school during the pandemic? I'm your host, Dr. Robin Henderson, Chief Executive of Behavioral Health for Providence in Oregon. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended nor is it implied to be a substitute for professional advice. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your provider. Participating in this event does not create a doctor-patient relationship. I want to introduce you to our guests today. Joining me are Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer at Providence, and Eric Partridge, an elementary classroom teacher in the Seattle Public Schools. So to get us started, can each of you take a moment and tell us about what you do in your professional roles? Eric, why don't you kick us off? Great, thank you. Um, I'm entering my fifth year as an elementary classroom teacher in the Seattle Public Schools, where I've taught third, fourth, and fifth grade. Um, I think it's important to note that my answers and thoughts are shaped by my experience as an elementary general education teacher, and therefore are not representative of all teacher or staff perspectives. Um, for example, like middle school, high school, and special education in particular, will all bring up additional questions and considerations that are things that I haven't thought through or don't necessarily have the expertise to comment directly on. And hi, I'm Amy Compton Phillips. I'm an internist by background and I'm the chief clinical officer here at Providence, which means I'm responsible for the care that we, and the health outcomes that we provide for the patients across our 51 hospitals and a thousand plus medical clinics and, and uh, 120,000 total caregivers and employees um, and have been helping lead our response to the COVID crisis. Um, and so really working hard on, even though I'm a mother, my children are in college now, um, so I'm not experiencing younger children at home, but boy, have I heard stories and boy, have I been looking at the data and the science and happy to, to share and have a dialogue about what we're learning. Well, speaking of science, let's start there. Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that the default position with K-12 schools should be to reopen them. What are your opinions about that recommendation? Eric, what are you thinking these days? Yeah. I, Go ahead, Eric. I think it makes sense for the default to be reopening schools, as that is the norm during the, any school year. However, I think it goes without saying that 2020 is anything but default. Um, and as a result, we need critical examination of the public health circumstances in any given community uh, before we can really think about reopening schools. We've seen coronavirus outbreaks happening quickly from Major League Baseball to the Gwinnett County School District, the largest in Georgia. Um, and most recently, just I believe the past couple days at the University of North Carolina, in addition to many 
uh, K-12 schools around the country. Um, I think with the rise of the internet, we've seen our country move away from resorting to and re uh, respecting experts in any particular field. I'm not a doctor. The last time I took a biology class was high school. I do not have the expertise to say when it is safe to reopen schools. Uh, so on that topic, like I was particularly excited about this interview for the ability to pair medical expertise with educational experience, because I think that's incredibly important to our ability to reopen schools safely in this country. Um, and I think there are two major questions that we have to tackle. Um, when can we return to school? And how do we return to school safely? Both questions require collaboration between the medical and educational fields. We must work together towards solutions for this highly important and nuanced problem. And with that, the idea of the expert, I will definitely defer to Amy. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Well, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and, you know, as physicians, and I think what Dr. Fauci was saying in his comment is that we know children benefit from being in school. And everybody wants kids to be in school to be able to get those benefits. That said, um, having kids go to school and spread the virus and making the pandemic take longer to tamp down and get under control and contributing to more people dying. We've already had 170,000 Americans die and those are mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters and we don't want more, right? So how do we, how do, we do what everybody wants to do? Get kids in school but in a way that's safe. And so I think what Eric was talking about is saying, you know, what is the evidence we can look at? Unfortunately, we have a little bit now. We've got um, other countries who've, who've fortunately gone first um, in trying to figure out how to reopen schools safely. And so we've been learning some things. And that's if the virus is under control in a community, starting with younger children first, it is rational to start going back to school. And so one of the challenges we have right now is we have a muzzle on our CDC and we don't have consistent national guidelines on what are those thresholds to say a virus is under control in a community. We have variations from in Washington state saying that it's 10 in 100,000 means a virus is under control. We have ones in like Arizona where they're saying 100 cases and under 100,000 means it's under control. In Washington state, that same level says it's completely out of control. So, so having, um, disconnects on what being in control is makes it much more challenging for for the teachers in the country as well as the parents and the experts to come up with some kind of rational guidance because it's all over the map. Well, Amy, speaking of other countries, are there any trends coming from the scientific perspective of other countries? Um, there are trends that uh, younger children themselves seem to be um, at lower risk from the virus. And, and again, this is not zero, it's lower, right? We know that there are healthy young children who not only um, acquired COVID itself, but also the aftermath of COVID, this multi-system inflammatory condition. Um, so COVID is, is, is a threat to even the youngest children. But sending younger children back to school as an opening statement seems to be reasonably safe, particularly those under the age of 10, because we believe that they have um, less capacity, less of, the, of, of all the people at risk, they are the lowest risk um, of, of any groups. Mm -hmm. And so that's a rational place to start, right? Um, the other thing we've seen is that um, 
people can open school when, again, the virus is under control with particular precautions. Countries that have done so successfully mandate mask use for, for kids over, and the ages vary, but somewhere mm -hmm. between seven and 10. Um, they do mandate having lesser numbers of children in the classroom and mandate um, the types of behavioral changes, things, everything from sneeze guards and hand washing to uh, keeping children in a cohort so that rather than having everybody mm -hmm. eat together in the cafeteria, um, a classroom will stay just with their classroom and even eat in the classroom, have PE outside at the same time as their classroom, so that you can minimize that kind of large group gathering cross-contamination that would would um, mm -hmm. make spread more possible. So I think learning from what works and then um, slowly ramping things up step by step is a rational way to go when the virus itself is under control enough to start um, incremental steps. You know what you're talking about in the in the cohorting uh, and eating together and things like that is very similar to what my daughter will be doing when she goes into college this week. She's cohorted with uh, a group of individuals that will become basically her residence hall partners or eating partners, and many of them are also studying public health like she is. You know. I can speak to the psychological benefits of kids being with other kids in school as a psychologist. I'm really familiar with that. But Amy, in your opinion, what are the medical benefits versus the risk of, of kids being with other kids in schools? And, and have we seen uh, any, anything with asymptomatic cases that we should be concerned about? Uh, can you say that last part again? Are we seeing any, what we can be concerned about? Any, any concerns with the asymptomatic cases? Yeah, um, definitely. How asymptomatic cases may impact, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, the, the big challenge is that it, it's not that we have kids who are infected going to school and intentionally infecting others. It's just the fact that um, the, the symptoms often don't show up, or if they do show up, they, they're so minimal in healthy young people, like, you know, high school age type people, um, that they're just the sniffles and it feels like allergies. And so they don't really realize they have COVID. And with that negligible or no symptom spread, it's very, very hard to get control of the contagion. And so teachers like Eric can be exposed or the cafeteria workers or the janitors. And oh, by the way, the parents that those kids bring it home to, right? So, so that's why um, having all these kids together as a cohort create real challenges. There is types of testing out there that today is not approved by the FDA. Something called, uh, only one version of it is something called an antigen test. And an antigen test is much less expensive and less um, invasive than the tests where you see the, the swab going way back in the nose, right? People don't want to get those every day. The antigen test is one that it's not as sensitive. It only finds about seven out of 10 cases, but it costs under $5 a test um, and it's really simple and it's from saliva. So you can spit on this wand, right? And and do that kind of test. And even if it misses um, some cases, if you're doing it every day before school, having tools like a widely available inexpensive antigen test is another way that we can start um, trying to identify asymptomatic spread and nip it in the bud. But that takes doubling down or, or quadrupling down on the testing strategies that we've had so far in the U.S. to identify those asymptomatic carriers. Well, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've seen some discussions about the 
to lie testing recently, especially as we've seen high schools in Georgia have to shut down. And now we're seeing large colleges that have come back in shutting down uh, and going back to online learning. Um, what do you see as the biggest risks with the high school and college age populations that are maybe different from our younger, younger kids? That for Eric? Question for Eric or question for me? Sorry about that. That was a question for you in terms of the health risks to our college age and high school students. Yeah. Um, you know, the health risks, the older you are, the higher your risk. Um, and so the, the, um, and part of it is because we acquire underlying conditions as we get older. So as as kids go from being childhood to teen to college age, um, certainly the risks of things like diabetes and obesity and um, uh, immune problems in, increase. And so with any of those kinds of other conditions, the overall health risks increase to the population. Um, Kids going off to college, particularly so. So you know, Robin, just to to add fuel to the worries that you have about your own daughter, um, that that you know, part of the college experience isn't just learning in a new environment, but it's learning how to be an adult, and they do that in groups. Um, and so, going off to college and expecting kids to self isolate is is kind of a a hurdle beyond which it's it's uh, human nature and the needs for social distancing kind of collide. And so I think there's real risk um, in, in real physical risk in large groups gathering in colleges. And so I think we need to be really creative with things like antigen testing um, because I don't want to say kids will be kids, but we know human nature. And why don't we find a way to work with human nature rather than fight against it? Yeah, that does add to my own personal stress level. I'm really, really glad Billy's going to a, a very small liberal arts college, uh, really tiny class size. And so oh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Eric, you recently wrote a five page letter to your school board. Uh, discussing your concerns about schools uh, and all of the things with reopening. What are some of the greatest barriers that you foresee with this strategy of partial reopening? Yeah, thank you. Back in June, I wrote a letter to the superintendent and school board um, in Seattle um, that brought up 31 questions across the six topics within uh, that are presented on your screen now. Um, I won't have time to address the whole letter there, but if you're interested in reading it, you can go to that URL, making sure you capitalize the R and the S, uh, to read all of the questions. Um, and, you know, developing healthcare procedures, such as who quarantines if there are positive tests, and at what threshold do case, of cases do schools close, is a major barrier to reopening if superintendents are not in close collaboration with healthcare professionals. But in schools, broadly, I think the greatest barrier is capacity. How does all the extra work happen related to uh, being safe in schools if there are no volunteers with presumably limited extra funding and current employees all having full-time roles already? You can take the slide down now if you want. Um, specifically for uh, capacity, things like increased cleaning of all school areas. Um, Seattle Public Schools announced that they're trying to have all classrooms cleaned every day rather than cleaned once every three days. Well, immediately that's like, are we adding 
two extra custodians to every school. Um, because as someone who's been out of school, when a custodian is leaving, like I can attest that they're not sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> so like, how are we managing the, in the increased need for cleaning? How are bathrooms gonna get cleaned three times a day? Um, and so like, where's the capacity for that cleaning? Teacher workload. Um, if we are in a hybrid model, who's supporting kids at home? Because teaching remote and teaching in person are two different jobs that are pretty full-time jobs that I can't do simultaneously. Um, related to that, in Seattle, and I know other districts around the country, um, parents are given the opportunity, the option to opt for full-time remote. And if a parent opts for full-time remote, who's responsible for their child? Because, you know, like, again, if I'm not seeing that kid at all, and but I'm with kids four or five days a week in person, like, I just don't have the capacity to do that. Um, I think managing COVID procedures um, and information, like the Seattle Public Schools has said that they're gonna get uh, attestations from parents each day, but like whose responsibility is managing those attestations? Whose responsibility is like keeping the information um, like relevant and up to date? And who's, main who's ensuring that all these procedures that are required for us to be in school safely are being able to be maintained when we all have all these other responsibilities that we are uh, responsible for. And I think lastly, around capacity and perhaps the biggest is uh, substitute teachers. We know our substitute pool mm -hmm. is generally older, oftentimes retired teachers. Um, so they're at greater risk for coming into mm -hmm. schools. Um, but we also know that teachers are likely gonna need more sick days. Um, we often go to school with mm -hmm. a cold, um, and like that is not going to be okay be, um, as we think about being safe. And so like, you know, and as teachers need to quarantine for two weeks, who's, who's watching children in person? Um, so just major issues of capacity mm -hmm. in a wide range of domains, particularly you when know, we are pretty confident we're not going to get a whole ton of extra funding. Well, and you bring up a really interesting issue. We have a question from our viewers asking about, uh, are you feeling pressure, um, both as a teacher and Amy to use an employer um, to help kids get back into school due to the daycare needs of people who need to be at work? I think it's important to think about how we make the decision and what our priorities are. Like reopening schools is vital to the economy but is is the economy our biggest priority or are we most concerned about the safety and welfare of american citizens and and i would i would just pile on that you know i think the goal is to get kids in school because it's best for kids right and and um, not to do daycare. If we just need daycare, we can find other solutions, but we need schools to be schools and help educate our children and socialize our children and help, particularly Eric, something you said early on, those kids with special needs that, you know, they're just going to fall behind when we have them staying at home. And so really the goal here is not to talk about having daycare for parents who need to work, but about how do we open schools safely. And I think something that we really need to do is is be open-minded to different models. I was talking with a friend um, who has his kids in school out in Maryland. Um, and the teachers, uh, the, the average age of the teachers at that elementary school is older. And so what they've decided is they have young 
aides, student teachers, volunteers, um, two per classroom. They have kids who are opting for in-person classroom, able to come into the classroom with all the appropriate protections. The aides help the kids log on and make sure they're settled and make sure their needs are met. So they're kind of doing almost that daycare function. Um, and the teacher is teaching remotely via Zoom or Skype or whatever uh, the WebEx version they're using in that school. But but that somehow is able to marry the, the need for people who physically really shouldn't be gathering in groups right now with the need for children to have both daycare as well as education. And I think it's finding models like that, um, that somehow we meet in the middle. This is not an all or none um, teacher, you know, uh, healthcare versus schools versus the economy. It's about how do we make things work? Let's just figure out how to make things work so we can contribute to the gross national health of our country, um, which includes educating our children and keeping people safe. You know, and you bring up, that's such a very unique way to look at how to do that because it also allows children to get the socialization, which is so important for their psychological health. Uh, part of what we do in school is learn how to be with other people and how to interact with different personalities and how to have those experiences that are part of helping uh, children of all ages grow and develop. Uh, and that brings up a very interesting question because as children, and I think Eric, you mentioned this early on, children are not really great at staying apart from each other. How are you approaching this uh, looking at an elementary school classroom? And what are some of the strategies you're thinking about to get students to adhere to physical distancing? I think talking about the reasons why we are physical distancing is important. Kids need to understand why we are asking them to do something that is very different than what we've asked them to ever do at school before. Much like Amy referenced, you know, part of the college experience being learning about becoming an adult and doing that socializing in groups, like school is the, is the same for kids. It's an opportunity to engage with same and different age peers and to develop friendships and to learn how to navigate those oftentimes first substantive relationships outside of your immediate family. Um, so when we think about what does recess look like if kids are supposed to be six feet apart, like. What does it mean that kids aren't going to be able to work together in any capacity? Um, so I think like it requires us to be mindful of like what kind of opportunities can we build in for different kinds of social interaction. Um, I think it's also important to think about like the safest way to return to school would look like no going to the cafeteria, no recess, no going to specials. It would probably mean no coming to the carpet or no learning in small groups. And like that would look like students sitting in one desk for a whole school day, lecture style, with their teacher up to 20 feet away while wearing masks. And I think like that's a situation that like we haven't thought enough about that like that is the safest way that we could return to school. I don't think it will necessarily happen that way, nor should it necessarily happen that way. But like that's the reality of like with the push to school, I don't think we've thought enough about what it would look like to be at school. Um, and I think another thing, like, so I think some of the creative ways I've thought about for like movement is like, there's a lot of things like Go Noodle and other websites that offer like movement breaks and thinking about how that if we return to school this year, that like, those are the kinds of things that we need, to, we as teachers need to build, build in. Um, and what kind of, what kind of creative ways, much like uh, Amy was talking about 
um, from like the medical side and thinking about how we can kind of reimagine school, what kind of creative ways can we as teachers and staff and buildings um, provide students with opportunities for socialization that are outside of our normal conception of it? You, you know, Eric, one thing I'd just like to pile on with what you're saying is, is you know, as we think about what's safe in this era of COVID, outside is always better than inside. Um, that with airflow and the ability that sunshine, and it's actually a pretty fragile virus, um, that that if, if it gets hit by heat and sunshine, um, it doesn't live very long. And so if we can, you know, this time of year, if we're in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, it's, it's, it's nice weather up until October-ish, um, if you're not having thunderstorms. Um, if we can have classrooms, you know, put them in a circle outside and play duck, duck, goose, I don't, you know, for movement, but, but have something that allows kids to be in fresh air and receive education out there. It's another way because um, inside buildings, it's just much more challenging to maintain all those surfaces and maintain the healthiness. But, but that's why I think, I think it, it is not a one size fits all. You know, if you are um, uh, in the sweltering heat of the deep South or in, Death Valley, it's probably not the same thing as if you're in a lovely temperate climate where where summer's beautiful and it's easier for kids to hang out outside. But I think I think by by tapping into the innovative and creative spirit that we have, that there probably are ways we can start with experimenting and safely helping our kids start to learn again. You know, we recently put a uh a tent up in the parking lot uh, outside of our eating disorders program so that we could do meal groups outside because we knew that meal groups were essential to eating disorder treatment, especially with adolescents, but the safest place to eat together is outside. So that's a really great point, especially as you start thinking about strategies for teachers. I'm really curious, Eric, what do you say is the general feeling amongst your fellow educators and how are they dealing with the psychological stress and pressure of going back into school. Yeah, I think as with everything related to COVID, feelings cover a wide range. Um, we see teachers quitting because they are being required to go back into schools in some states around the country. And we also see teachers leaving because things are fully online. Um, and I think like Amy said, like we want kids back in schools, like teachers want to be back in schools. Like we did not sign up for this gig to be sitting on Zoom in our bedrooms for 40 hours a week. Like that's not, not why any of us are here. Um, I think a colleague of mine mentioned the worry for the teaching profession this year. And I hadn't really thought about that. And I think that's really important. Um, she predicts that we're gonna see like teachers leaving mid year. Um, and I think, you know, I'm thinking of like how, what that means longer term for the teaching profession is also really important. Um, and I think related to that is teachers haven't had the opportunity to de-stress from the spring and really unplug because we have, uh, we've been constantly considering the uh, uncertainty around the fall and the uncertainty that still exists. Like just yesterday, it was announced that our first official day of school in Seattle will be September 4th. And like, that's, you know, two and a half weeks from now. And we still have a lot of, we have a lot more questions than we have answers. Um, so I think that that the effects of being on the computer constantly in a job that we have never done that before, um, thinking about how we haven't had the opportunity to like process what happened in the spring, like recharge those batteries. Um, and I also think about like how 
the thought of shaking hands with a stranger or hugging a friend is like anxiety provoking for me. And I know that that's gonna, you know, magnify times, what, five, 10, 100, when I see kids in my classroom uh, not maintaining the health protocols. Um, and not for their lack of trying, but because it's really not developmentally appropriate for us to ask, um, you know, five through 11 year olds to wear a mask for six and a half hours a day. Um, and I know that this, so that's gonna bring increased stress for us teachers in the classroom. It's also gonna bring increased stress for parents um, in sending their kids to schools. And we know that kids feed off of the emotional states around them. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of concern uh, for our own safety, for the safety of our kids and, our, and their families. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of anxiety whenever we go back to school, even if it isn't for a year. Well, and, and you bring up a really good point, Eric, about, um, you know, with kids and teens returning to school, if we weren't in the time of COVID, there would be other preparations that we're making. And I'm thinking, you know, Amy, what other health precautions or preventative measures do fans need to be thinking about right now? Oh, well, I read a really disturbing article that um, it, it was some very small percentage of classrooms actually have access to hand washing stations. And I'm thinking like, really? <laughs> like maybe this is why schools are, are fulcrums for um, the ability to spread germs. And so, so can we be thinking about making hand washing, access to hand washing universal? Can we make it okay for teachers when they're sick to stay home? <laughs> so are there a few societal things? Can we, by the way, you know, thank heavens, we have um, science and evidence-based school boards for the most part in the US where we have mandated vaccines, but can we actually leverage the once a legitimately proven safe and effective COVID vaccine is available. Can we make that part of the, the uh, fabric of the US that we require the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine along with all the other standard childhood vaccines going back to school so that we can actually use schools to interrupt the cycle of transmission and promote herd immunity in the country for germs that um, today because of, of some really non science-based disinformation available on social media has subverted one of the most effective tools we have in the public health armamentarium and made it seem like they are um, dangerous rather than absolutely brilliant. Well, then putting a plug in, let's remember that our routine and regular vaccines are also important during this time of COVID. Uh, keep those regular health Checkups, go see your pediatrician and get vaccinated. You know, we are coming close to the end of our time together, and I'm wondering, with the wisdom that you two have, what is the one piece of advice you give parents or teachers who are struggling with kids returning back to school, either in person or online? What's your what's your number one piece of advice? Do you want to take that first, Amy? Eric, why don't you jump in first? Okay. Oh, uh, <laughs> either way. Um, be human first. Teachers, we are unlikely to teach all the standards or requirements for this year. Parents, your child is unlikely to make a full year's worth of growth across subjects. Both of these are okay. And in fact, I think it's probably better that we, and that we could do more damage than good by trying to do too much. The narrative and fear around students falling behind is strong. And we, teachers and parents alike, must push back on it. Because really, they're falling behind a man-made standard 
a made up line of where we've decided that they should be at a certain age or grade. Uh, and there is value to these standards for sure. Um, but this is the time to remember our humanity first. It will not be easy as we have all been indoctrinated into the meritocratic, individualistic, competitive culture of whiteness in education, but it is definitely worth fighting against. Um, the following two questions come from Nailia Suad Nasir and Megan Bang, the president and senior vice president of the Spencer Foundation, um, who in their community letter uh, on COVID asked us this. What if we recognize this moment as also a possibility to reconfigure life towards the world we want? What kinds of new questions would we ask? What kinds of reimagining might we do together? By being human first, consider the message and priorities you are communicating to the people in your life, from young to old, from coworkers to the President of the United States, about the world we want to reimagine for our children and our students to grow up into. That was absolutely beautiful, Eric. And, and I could not have said anything better. Be human first, I would definitely say. The other thing I would say is, is you know, the Winston Churchill quote of never, ever, 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 ever give up. And I probably mis miscounted the number of evers. But um, that is, that is if, if our goal is being human first and creating the best lives possible for our children, while we preserve the humanity of our teachers and parents and custodians and lunch for lunch workers, um, then we need to think about how can we launch the incredible creativity and skill that we have in here in the U.S. and create different solutions so that we can um, create what what will at the moment feel like a very custom 2020, but maybe when we look back. Um, we'll, we'll say that this was the moment when we humanized the educational system. So that's my hope, that we're not going to give up, that we're going to keep moving forward. We're going to solve the need for kids um, while, we, while we reconfigure how we make it through this pandemic. Well, I want to thank you, Amy and Eric, for sharing your wisdom. Joining us here today, you have left us with some very profound thoughts. And thank you to everybody for listening in and sending in your questions. To learn more about our initiatives, programs, and services, please go to providence.org. Or if you're looking for medical care, we're always here to help you. And make sure you follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you again for joining us today. And your host, Dr. Robin Henderson. Have a great day and stay safe. <music>